and I'm sitting there, and then I get this message. It's not like I heard anything. It's like somebody's talking to me, but there's no delay. This was a direct message into my brain. It was, I love you, your sins are forgiven. Hello and welcome back to the My Future Business Show. My name's Rick Nusky. I'm your host. I love hosting this show. I love supporting the, the community behind the show. I love my guests. I love what we talk about. And if you've been supporting the show for any length of time, thank you so very much for that support. As I always like to say, it always makes a difference for me knowing how much the show is making a difference for you. Now on today's show, I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming author Paul Joel to talk about his new book called A Man Like You and Me, a supernatural adventure story. We're going to be learning what inspired Paul to become an author. We're going to also take a bit of a deep dive into the creative process Paul followed when writing his book. So with all that being said, Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful to have you here. Now, what we do, Paul, is we have a, a few moments of time to learn a little bit about you. So tell us where you're calling in from today. Well, I'm calling in from uh, Loudonville, New York. I'm from New York. Uh, I grew up, uh, I was born in New Jersey, but grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Always a Brooklyn boy. Yeah, fantastic. Now, what do you love about the place where you're living now? Well, it's, it's great. I'm, I'm near uh, my uh, wife's uh, relatives. And oh, yeah. Great. Yeah, fantastic. I don't, I, don't have a, I don't have a lot of relatives on my side of the family, so I, I'm very happy to, to basically incorporate the relatives from her side. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you for sharing. Now, tell us a little bit about Brooklyn, New York, and you know what can you remember growing up there, and what's a major landmark that people should know if they don't? Well, um, the major landmark when I was a kid was Ebbets Field. Yep. Unfortunately, the Dodgers left, okay? Yeah. They went to California. Okay? Yeah. It was like uh, a travesty of, of whatever. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, there's, there's nice parks. There's Prospect Park. I lived across the street in, in an apartment building from Prospect Park um, when I was uh, in first and second grade. Um, and um, it's a wonderful place. I mean... If it was an independent city, it would be the fourth largest populated city in the United States. Yeah, wow. So, so there's a lot of people there. Okay? There's 2.6 million people in Brooklyn by itself. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it has a great library system. It has uh, it has Kings County Hospital, where I did my internship and residency. Oh, yes, yes. And, now, get this, okay? Um, the tunnel system connecting the buildings, the various buildings in Kings County Hospital, it's the second largest tunnel system in New York City after the subway. Oh, goodness me. How large this place is, okay? Yeah. And, and, and it had um, a main building that had the emergency room and uh, medical wards and surgical wards that was like, the size of a city block. But then it had a separate building, E-building, uh, for uh, pulmonary. And uh, I, I basically learned to love pulmonary there because the head of pulmonary division there was uh, Dr. Howard Lyons, this man of genius. Yep. And, uh, and they also had the K building for the inpatient psychiatric uh, people. And um, if you want to if you want to have a, a moment of terror, try doing a medical consult in the middle of the night in that building. And the first thing is it's it's locked up. So yeah, the first thing I'd worry about is am I going to get out of here? Like, you know, I'm <laughs> one of the patients here and never let me out. Okay? And, and, and you know. Having been told that I'm crazy many times in my life, it was something that would cross my mind. Um, so, oh, I thought uh, I was the only one, Paul. No, no, no. You're a lot in the long line. You know. um, and you know, the craziest thing I ever did was uh, try to play professional football. I, I played in this two-hand touch league of cement um, and thought, well, I, I knew how to catch a football. I had a, a talent there. Yep. So uh, I lifted weights for two and a half, 
two years, went from 160 pounds to 215 pounds and tried out for the Bridgeport Jets, uh, farm, the farm team of the New York Jets. Yep. And uh, it was a little bit comical because uh, I didn't know how to put the equipment on. <laughs> okay. And, and I, I picked out a helmet that was a lineman's helmet with a full cage. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And the equipment manager said, obviously you're not a lineman, you're not big enough. Um, you got the wrong helmet. I said, no, this is the helmet I want. I want all these features to remain where they are, you know. Uh, and um, but then I had trouble figuring out how to put the cup on, which is um, something very, very, very embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, you know, the jock strap work, jock strap work. But the other thing is, how do I do that without shaking my leg? Well, it's a process. It, it, well, it's a process, especially I never saw one of those things. Okay? So, <laughs> and, and then I, I was, you know, I, there was about 200 people to try out, and I was one of the 20 selected. And I was in the training camp and getting the equipment and everything else, and, and I was there for three weeks doing really well and then i hurt my knee and um that was it well what happened is it, it would subluxate not dislocate but subluxate i would run down the field plant it and then i'd be on the floor untouched and the coach said hey you know you would have made this team get your knee fixed yeah so i went to, went to medical school that year i had already been accepted and then i did the surgery the next year and unfortunately um i wake up from the surgery and uh complained the cast is too tight and the orthopedist said well it's got to be snug and the next thing um i woke up in the middle of the night uh, an orthopedic resident saw it open and my foot was paralyzed and numb and whatever and i was on crutches for the rest of the school year so in a way it was it was terrible because i couldn't play football and i also couldn't be an orthopedist for a football team no. sleeping about but it made me a much better physician i listen a patient could come in and have 25 complaints and maybe three of them were, are you know legitimate Yep. I listen to all 25, okay? And yeah, I've, yeah. Never had, I've never had a, a malpractice suit, never had a, a problem with that. You know, it's made me a much better physician. So God was helping me, even though I, I didn't realize God existed. And I never believed in God, okay? Mm. Because my parents were Polish Jews, and everyone in my mother's family was murdered by the Nazis. Same with my father. And my mother was like five or six years old, and they didn't send anyone to a concentration camp. They just took care of business right there. Mm. They tied up everybody else, and... Um, it was a, probably a very big house because she had three sisters who were married. And get this, the nieces and nephews were older than she was, okay? So she was really not planned there. And um, first they tied everybody up, then they killed the children, and then they raped the women, and they killed them. And yeah, wow. Well, I, I think, you know, that's something we can certainly um, talk a little bit about in, when, as we progress through the call. But um, before we jump into more of, the, I guess, the core of your book and, and, and what's happening there and how that all came about, Tell me, as as you were growing up, I often think about the people you've just sort of touched on. Some of the people that were in your life, but what? Who was in your life? Were there any people in your life, Paul, that were a big influence for you, a positive influence for you? Oh, the greatest person was uh, Mr. Frank Tandler. Um, my parents worked multiple jobs, so and there's no daycare. So what do you do with a kid? So in first grade, uh, I'm first, second, and third grade, and fourth grade actually, I'm in yeshiva. Okay. Yep. Yeshiva is for Jewish boys, and it's from 8 in the morning to 5 at night, okay? In the morning, you learn how to read Hebrew, write Hebrew, uh, learn about the Old Testament, uh, Jewish history. In the afternoon, somebody comes in and teaches you what you've learned in public school, reading, writing, arithmetic, whatever. And um, again, going back to when I was three, I wasn't talking then, and I didn't have a pediatrician then. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, a friend of my parents said, hey, it's not normal. The kids should be able to talk. Um, you know, what, what's... You need to see a pediatrician. So again, I have this great, I had two things going for me. I had this great memory and this great immune system. 
And so here I am 71 years ago, and I was seen by a female pediatrician, sent me to a, a male pediatric neurologist, and my parents were very worried that I was retarded. And um, after examining me, he said, this is a direct quote from 71 years ago, okay? Yeah. No, he's not retarded. No, he's not retarded. He's aware of his environment. He's just slow. He's very slow, but he'll learn to talk. Like basically, he's dumb as a box of rocks, but he's not retarded. That was the upshot of this. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, then, so then when I went in yeshiva, I'm getting D's. I'm the worst student in every in every subject. Okay. And it's not like my parents are running up saying, what's the matter here? They already told me he's dumb. Okay. So this went on for first grade and second grade. And then we moved to a different part of Brooklyn. Now it was worse because instead of walking a few blocks, I had to take walk four blocks, take the Remsen Avenue bus to six miles, walk another block to Yeshiva Rabbi David Leibowitz. Okay. And new kids, new school, same result, the dumbest kid. And I was very frustrated. It's amazing I turned into some kind of mass murderer. Uh, and then towards the end of third grade, Mr. Frank Tandler, who's the person who taught me uh, the, the public school part in the afternoon, said, need to see me after class. And I was worried because I wasn't going to get an award for being dumb, okay? Yeah. And, and, uh, and he said, look, I don't know what's going on with you, but when I call on you in class, you seem to have some idea what's happening. But when you take these tests, you're the worst student I've ever had in my entire career. Don't you study for the test? So I told him a story about when I was three, and I'm dumb. And I don't get home till six, and there's Hebrew homework when there's a test to do. I barely have enough time to do that. Get, the, get something to eat, clean up, do the Hebrew homework, get my sandwich ready for the, for the next day. And why should I waste my time studying? I'm done. And he said, you're not dumb. It's study for the test. So about two weeks later, he announces in the class, there's a test. And he looks at me and says, and you? You understand English or is English a second language for you? I don't want to hear about your schedule. Study for the test. You understand English? Okay. And everyone looked at me because all these kids were like me. They were children of, of uh, immigrants. And my father had a tough time with English. He'd say Wednesday, Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. So, so I studied for the test and got an A. And my whole life changed. Wow. And then, and then I got A's and everything. And here's the other part of it. Every one of those teachers in Yeshiva had dark hair like me. And when I get the answer wrong, I got smacked the, the, the ruler over my hands. I got little scars on the tops of my hands from getting beaten by these people. And, and then, so I, I finally talked my way into public school because I heard, hey, if you take this test in sixth grade and you do really well, you go from seventh grade to ninth grade, you skip eighth grade. You skip That's grade. School, progress. That's all right. For me, for me, having one less year of school is like winning the lottery. Like, what's possible better? <laughs> so I, I get my, I talk my way into public school. It's already a win because it's, it's nine to three, uh, not eight to five. And the first teacher I have is a female teacher. And of course, I don't remember her name, but I think we'll keep her name out of this. Also with dark hair. Okay. And she hated all the boys. She was some kind of pervert. And, and I get the answer wrong. I'm, I'm in, you know, fourth, fifth grade, whatever the hell, I'm 10 years old. And she's saying, what is a direct quote? Listen, you have to stop thinking with your penis and start using your brain for a change. Oh, what? I was, I was like mortified, okay? It wasn't just me. It was all the boys, okay? And finally, I got into this, the smartest sixth grade, and I had Miss Hammer, who was a blonde. And for the first time, nobody was beating me. Nobody was embarrassing me. It was like normal school. And I think in the back of my head, I was already like pre-programmed, mm. you know, that uh, blonde is, uh, is wholesome, blonde is good. Blonde is, you know, is, is, it's all is, the is good, good things. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So now fast forward, I have this great memory, okay? And, and I had this genius, Dr. Howard Lyons, in charge of pulmonary at Kings County Hospital. And he did things differently. Normally, um, you, uh, the underling 
reads the note of the patient that was admitted. So there's a whole hierarchy. The lowest is the intern, the resident, the yeah. fellow, and the attending, whatever it is. So you'd have three or four admissions, you'd wrap all night, and then morning report would come the next morning, and he would take the charts. One of his models was, if you know the patient, you don't need the chart. Okay? And none of the other doctors could do that. They'd kind of cheat and say, well, the labs are all normal except for this, this, and this. But I gave them everything. But metabolic panel with the 16 numbers, the urinalysis, the CBC, the history of at least three or four patients. And because uh, of his letter of reference, I got to do a pulmonary fellowship at Mass General Harvard. Oh, wow. So I'm there the first day on the ward, and there's eight patients throughout the hospital. So thinking, you know, I'm expected to memorize this. I mean, um, they expect me to do that at Downstate Medical Center, Kings County. That was the standard, and, wasn't it? Right. That was the standard, with, only with Dr. Lyons. And, you know, he's in charge of pulmonary. And, and so, and, and this guy was a genius, okay? Yeah. Here's how much genius this guy was, okay? He's, he's pulmonary, he's lung disease, not OBGYN. With his superhuman powers of observation, he thought that women who were menstruating were breathing differently on their during their estrogen or progesterone part of the cycle. So he brought in a whole slew of women and proved that, yeah, they're breathing more during the progesterone part of their cycle. Then he took these patients who had central sleep apnea. You've probably heard of, of uh, obstructive sleep apnea and overweight people treating CPAP. Well, central yes. sleep apnea is, is much worse yep. because you have no signal to breathe. So you have to have a tracheostomy tube and be connected to a ventilator at night or you're dead. Wow. Okay? Yep. And, and it, it was always a mess because the patients were moving their sleep, the hole in the neck would get bigger, get infected. It wasn't even a simple thing like that. Anyway, so he took all those patients with central sleep apnea and gave them a pill of progesterone to take every day, and voila, they're cured. No more tracheostomy, no more ventilator. Nothing. That's it. Nothing, okay? I mean, yeah. people have won the Nobel Prize in medicine for, you know, for, for less than that, okay? So that's how much of a genius he was. Anyway, so I'm on the wards now, and there's eight patients on the pulmonary service at Mass General uh, Harvard. And so thinking I'm supposed to memorize this, I get there two hours before him, memorize everything on those patients, sharp, you know, which is a pretty good memory, okay? Yeah. It's not a photographic memory, but it's pretty amazing. And I never realized that I had any special uh, memory until I lost it and got sick later on. That's well, that's story. funny because I think that might be a good segue if we can jump to that because I think for the sake of context, Paul, uh, I know okay. that you suffered, uh, please excuse me if I don't pronounce this correctly, Hashimoto's encephalitis. Is that, that's it. That's is that what this was detail. about? Yes. And again, when I studied for the internal medicine boards, you have to know about, if you want to pass the first time like I do, you have to know about unusual presentations of common diseases. Yep. So thyroid disease is very common. Something called Hashimoto's thyroiditis is uncommon. And the two tests are positive, antithyroid globulin and antithyroid peroxidase. That's how you make the diagnosis. So I heard the term, but Hashimoto's encephalitis is very rare. Fewer than 500 people in the history of the world have had it. Mm. And it's listed in the uh, NORD, National Organization for Rare Diseases, listings. And so I'm driving to work on March 25th, 2019 to see patients in the office. And suddenly I don't know how to drive the car or use a cell phone. I'm like clueless. So on. I stop the car and the policeman calls my wife, fortunately, and I get admitted with this diagnosis. The MRI of my brain lit up like a Christmas tree. Most, I'd say 90% of my long-term memory was wiped away. Goodness All of my short-term memory was wiped away, okay? And basically from this great memory, I'm now like a moron. And uh, if you've seeing anybody who's had a traumatic brain injury, not only is the patient sick, but the but the, the spouse is also incredibly infected by this, okay? Of course. It's like a new person, okay? And, and so um, I was treated with uh, chemotherapy at, at three times the FDA-approved dose, uh, steroids, anti-seizure medicines for two years, and uh, nothing changed. 
So they stopped the medicine and, and I was a moron. And again, I don't want anybody to get the impression that I'm some kind of hero here because uh, at one point I, I called a priest that I knew. Again, I was homebound. Uh, haven't driven a car since March 2015, 2019. Yeah. And I asked the priest, look, I don't want to go to hell for committing suicide, but you know, this is kind of ridiculous. Um, I have no hard to deal with. I have no brain, and, and I also have this peripheral neuropathy where my fingers don't work, my feet are numb, which I still have, by the way. My balance yeah. is off. I fell down a flight of stairs a couple of months ago and broke my wrist. Um, so, and, and this way, my wife can marry somebody else also, okay, and not be stuck with me. And he said, you know, God will understand. That's fine, you know, go for it. And I would have done that, but one of the doctors who took care of me said, did you tell him about the book? And, and I said, no, why would I do that? He said, well, if you really think in the book, and you're the person in the book, and in real life, you're supposed to get the Pope in unison with the bishops to consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary in this church in Moscow. Otherwise, there'll be a nuclear holocaust. Well, you can't quit. You can't say no to God. It's not like, okay, you've been assigned that. And, and it's like Noah's being told to, to build the ark, and Noah says to God, find somebody else. I'm not building it, okay? And it's not going to go well for Noah, okay? So that's the only reason I'm still alive. Yeah, well, so, can I ask you then? Paul, I don't, I don't understand where that message came from. Did you, where, did, where did this, this idea for the book came from? Like, clearly, it was sent well, to you. It, yeah, it, it came from me because it, it's, it, it's real events. Okay, again, I never believed in God, and when I asked my wife to marry me, yeah, um, she said, "Well, I'll marry you." She's very religious. Okay, in the book, she's not. It's, that's a little bit of a switch. Okay, yeah. Okay, uh, and, and she said, "I'll marry you if you get baptized." And you know, as honest, I said, "You know, I don't believe in God." He says, "That's okay. We baptize infants. Nobody's going to ask you anything." So I said, "Okay." Uh, somebody threw some water on my head, and I get to marry the woman of my dreams. It's a deal of the century. So I was baptized on uh, November fourth, nineteen eighty-one. We were married uh, on Jan January twenty-fourth, nineteen eighty-two. Yeah. But we really didn't have time for a honeymoon. So this was the honeymoon. This this six-week tour of uh, of. Uh, Europe on a Euro pass, ah, right and, and, she's, and she's there, okay, just yeah, yeah. In, the book, in the book she's not there, so we're in Germany of all places, okay, and yep. again, one of the take-home messages is don't hate people, okay, so we're in Germany to see this beautiful castle in Schwanstein, built by Ludwig II in the 1800s, before Nazis, okay. Is that and, the images uh, you've got on your website? That's one of the images, ah, that's the beautiful castle. Right. Okay, okay right. continue, yes. Right, so... Um, we're on the bus, and the bus stops in the middle of nowhere at a coffee shop, which obviously paid the bus company to stop. And everyone, including my wife, gets off the, the, the bus and goes to the coffee shop. But I didn't feel like eating or drinking, and I didn't have to use the restroom. And across the street is this church. Yep. And I didn't know the story of it. It's called Tears Church, Wieskirchen. And the story was there was a stick figure of Jesus being scourged that they used to use in a Good Friday procession. But everyone agreed it was ugly, so they tossed it in the barn for a couple of decades until somebody realized there were actual tears coming from the eyes of Jesus in this thing. So they put that on the altar and they built this church there, okay? And so I walk in there, and it's beautiful. The, the ceilings and the walls are gorgeous, but your eye is drawn to this ugly thing. And I'm sitting there, and then I get this message. It's not like I heard anything. It's like somebody's talking to me, but there's no delay. Like yeah, when yeah. I talk to you, there's a millisecond delay of, what I'm saying, your, your brain is trying to interpret what I'm saying. This was a direct message into my brain. It was, I love you, your sins are forgiven. Okay? Oh, wow. And then I was converted, a little bit like St. Paul on the way to Damascus, on the road to Damascus. Immediately I was converted. And I was really happy, okay? And, and um, my wife saw that something's going on. And our, our uh, plan was to sleep on the train at night to go to Vienna. This way I don't have to pay for a hotel room for that night. And so I, as we're checking out, it was a very inexpensive place. 
I said to my wife, uh, let's celebrate. Let's find a nice place to eat here. We can take the next train. It'll be Europe. It's not like we have a ticket to a specific train. Uh-huh. So I asked the uh, clerk there, what's one of the nicest places to eat? And he said, probably the, the Four Seasons restaurant uh, in the Four Seasons Hotel. So I said to my wife, let's go there. And he said, you can't get in there. He said, what do you mean? He says, well, it's a Friday night. Apparently, October 15th, 1982 is a Friday. It, it's a small restaurant. You need a reservation, and you're not dressed appropriately. You have jeans, and he didn't say sneakers, and running shoes, and backpacks. Yeah, yeah. And you need a suit, and she needs a gown. You'll never get in there. So I said to myself, of course I'm getting in there. I mean, if the creator of the universe just communicated with me, and I want to celebrate that, of course he's going to take care of it. We're going to get in there. So we run down there, and, and uh, there's a doorman with a top hat and everything else. And he asked, yep. you know, who's going to wear the restaurant? He's on the second floor. And then before we walk in there, he says, let me take your backpacks. I'll give them to you on the way out. You know, basically, we don't allow people dressed like you with backpacks in our lobby, let alone eat here, okay? So I go upstairs, and uh, everyone is, the waiters, the piano player, the tuxedos, the guests are in gowns and whatever that is, and suits. And he asked me my name, so I give him my name. And um, there's one table empty, and there's a reserve sign on it. He takes the reserve sign off. And my wife said she saw our last name on it. I didn't see that. Oh, okay. We have this, have this great meal, and the piano player is playing the song. And so I asked him the waiter, do you know the lyrics? He said, yeah. It's, it's called A Man Like You and Me, which is where the part of the title of the book comes from. Of course. And, and the, the lyric is that it doesn't matter whether you're a king or you're rich, we're all slaves to our fate. We're all equal in this world. And again, the book is about free will and things that, you know, that happen and fate, okay, uh, and how that interplays. Like a perfect example is if you read the Old Testament, there's a story of uh, Abraham and Isaac, okay? Um, and uh, Abraham is, is told, uh, uh, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, okay? And so he builds a place uh, to sacrifice it, and, and he, uh, he ties up uh, Isaac, who asked, by the way, uh, where's, the, where's the animal we're sacrificing? And, you know, turns out he's the animal we're sacrificing. Okay? Thanks for coming. <laughs> right, right. And as uh, Abraham's about to uh, lift up his knife to kill him, God says, hold off, you pass the test, okay? It's like a test of faith. But it wasn't a test for him because God knows the future. So he knew what Abraham was going to do. But it's more like a take-home message for us. You know, we, we need to keep our faith even when things are terrible, okay? And, and, and you know, it doesn't make sense. Um, so that, that's, that's, that's part of this. So, again, yeah. I, I, I never believed in God until I walked into this tears church and suddenly, uh, you know, I was converted. And then... Unfortunately, or fortunately, when, the, when you have these supernatural events, there's always a match to it, so you know you're not going crazy. So the next day, we sleep on the train, we arrive in Vienna, check in the hotel, and it's, it's nighttime now, and we're hungry. So I look in the book, guidebook, and there's a, a restaurant near St. Stephen's Cathedral. And it's the big cathedral in Vienna, and, and there's a law there, you can't have a building higher than that, so you can see the steeple from, from everywhere, they don't have to ask directions. Yep. So go there. And I open the door, it's a glass door with a wooden frame. And wait, one last thing. The night before that, my wife writes this list, which is in the book, okay? Yeah, yeah. It's a list of um, uh, St. Bridget, Paul, Stephen, Marcus, four founders. Doesn't make a lot of sense, okay? Yeah. But St. Bridget was in there, okay? Anyway, so um, um, I open the door to walk in there. And there's a light on the second floor uh, where the restaurant's supposed to be, but it's a dim light. And... um, I look up and I see a Christmas tree 
for about five seconds, that disappears. Then I see an Easter candle for about five seconds and disappear. Then I see the face of Jesus, and he's not smiling or anything, and I'm terrified. So I run through the door to try to get out, and we're locked in. Okay. Now, again, I'm a Pony fellow who grew up in New York City. There's a law in every Western country since 1921. What happened in 1921? There was a fire in the Coconut Grove nightclub in Manhattan. And for whatever reason, the people couldn't get out. They were burnt alive. So yeah. there's a law in every one of these Western countries. You can lock the place when there's nobody there. You don't want people to rob you when it's closed. But if anyone can open the door, you can't lock them in. And I'm locked in. I can't open the door. And I tap on the window. And a nice man with dark hair tries to open the door that I could easily open before. And he can't. And now I'm really frightened and whatever. And then about two minutes later, a lady with blonde hair. Oh, yes. And I had a good look at her face because I'm standing at the door, okay? Opens the door and lets us out, okay? And I remember saying to my wife, I don't care where we're going. I don't care what the restaurant is, what kind of food is. I need to, whatever restaurant we see, we're eating at. I need to be around people. I don't know what that was. Was the Twilight Zone or what the heck that was. Okay? <laughs> yep. Anyway, the next day I buy this book of saints. And I look at July 23rd, which is the feast day of St. Bridget of Sweden. And there's the face of the lady who opened the door. So she, oh, may have been no born, way. she may have been born in 1400 and died in 1473. But on October 16th, 1982, she was there in Vienna opening the door for us. Okay. That's that's amazing, isn't it? Right. Well, so this is this is why I believe, okay? This this is, you know, this is why I believe in God. And, and, and again, I'm not comparing myself to the perfection of the Blessed Virgin Mary, but even in the Annunciation, when she's told you're going to have Jesus as a son, and she says, well, how can this be? Because, you know, I, I have nothing to do with man. And he, he says, the angel says to her, well, um, your uh, cousin Elizabeth, who was considered barren, is already pregnant. She's in her sixth month, okay? And um, uh, all things are possible with God. And that's the message, all things are possible with God. So, of course, the next, next um, that's the first uh, uh, mystery of the rosary. The second is the visitation. And she visits her, her uh, cousin Elizabeth. And with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth says, how is it that the, the mother of my Lord has come to visit me? Okay, so, again, I'm not comparing myself to anyone no, else. No. But this idea of there's some kind of supernatural thing that's very hard to believe, and you need some kind of sign that you're not crazy. Okay, no. that, that, that's just real. Okay, and, and so I've had a lot of those. Uh, and again, um, the book has the, the cover of the book has has the writings of um, Saint Paul, the definition of love. Yeah, yeah. It's one Corinthians because basically, without love, you know, life is meaningless. And the back that's of the book has a baseball batter. Okay, why? Because the baseball batter, you know, it's the national pastime in the United States even though football is more popular. Yep. Um, it, the baseball batter comes to the plate hoping for a hit, and more times than not, he gets an out. And so the idea is we're all sinners, we all sin, and the, the question is what do you do afterwards? You've got to keep trying. Okay, He's got to get up the next time and, and try anyway and, and try to get a hit the next time. Okay, There's a next time. You've got to keep no, swinging the bat. You keep swinging. You've know, you got to keep at it. So that's the kind of the... the that's that, the gist of the book. Well, that's the gist of the book. And the other thing is... Again, um, in the book and in real life, I'm supposed to get the Pope and the bishops to do the consecration as requested by Our Lady of Fatima in 1917. She came and uh, she had various different uh, visits with the three uh, sh shepherd children. And the last visit was October 13th, 
1917, when he said, I'm Mary, not some lady in heaven, and he was to go to the Pope and have him consecrate Russia to my Immaculate Heart with the bishops. And two popes have actually consecrated Russia to her Immaculate Heart, but never as requested with the bishops. So in the book and in real life, I feel I'm tasked with getting this done. And when I wrote the book in 1988, uh, I, I was told that it's supposed to be done in a church in Moscow, okay? You would think it would be done in the Vatican because the bishops meet with the Pope three or four times um, a year at the, the Vatican. Vatican. It would be too simple to just get it done there, okay? Yep. But no, and then as I'm editing the book and as more of these supernatural events occur, uh, I'm told the name of the church. It's supposed to be the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Moscow. That's the name of the church it's supposed to be. So again, um, and the person in the book is supposed to get this done, okay? And um, the beautiful blonde, Mary Beth, works for the CIA, and she's supposed to make sure that I get there, okay? Uh, and, and that's her task, okay? Her task, she's had a wonderful career. This is her last assignment. She just has to get this idiot there, and she hates me. Okay? Yeah. And in the book, she doesn't believe in God, and I do, but that's obviously not the case. That's, yeah, know. yeah, absolutely. Right. So, um, and in real life, on October 13th, 1982, we're on a train in Munich. This, real, this has really happened, okay? And um, about, I'm behind her, we're standing in the aisle, it's packed, and about 10, 15 feet in front of her, with his back to the train car, uh, ending of the train car, is this crazy man with a knife, okay? And they're screaming at him in German, which I didn't understand. And suddenly he bolts towards my wife, okay? And a normal reaction would be, I'll jump out of the way. She'll seize this. She's, she's athletic. She's the per perfect person. She's brilliant. She's gorgeous. She's athletic. She could have been a professional skier, okay? She's All those sick. things. Everything, okay? But, uh, you know, she'll, she'll jump out of the way. But that's not what I did. I grabbed her by the shoulders and threw her on the lap of some guy on the left side, okay? And then I put my weight on her so she couldn't stand up. There's no way this guy could reach her, okay? Yep. And, and unfortunately, my whole side is open because I got my hand on her and I'm still in the aisle, okay? And by the grace of God, as this guy ran past me, he had to move out of the way not to stab me, okay? No. So he runs to the other car and now the, you know, the emergency is off, it's finished. And I let her up and here's St. Mary Beth. She didn't even say thank you. Like, this is the perfect human being, okay? If you carried her groceries from the market to the car, she'd say thank you. Here I risk my life, and there's nothing, okay? And for years, I would pray to God before I went to sleep, and I'd say, explain this to me. Like, how is this even possible? Then I got sick, okay? And then all this stuff was wiped out of my memory, and that's what happened to her. She didn't say thank you because immediately it was wiped out of her memory by, by the opposite of God, okay? And when I try to explain this, she thinks I'm making up some kind of story, okay? It didn't happen, whatever that is, okay? Now, yep. in, the book, in the book, there's a little bit of uh, humor there, okay? I make her look better. I make her look better in the book, okay? In the book, I put the scene in the bakery, and she sees the guy, the crazy guy with the knife. And again, her job is to make sure I'm safe, okay? And so she immediately tosses me away as so I'm sit, lying in some kind of pile of rolls or something, okay? And she's ready to take, take this guy on, okay? To make sure yep. I'm safe, okay? But from my view, it looks like he's about to stab her. So I run out of this position of safety and try to stop him. And in the process in the book, okay, I get like a little bit of blood on my shirt okay and she starts screaming at me like what the hell is wrong with you i did everything i could this is a catastrophe the people from the cia are watching this they're going to think i failed okay and you know how could you be so stupid and blah 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 on and on and on on and on right and finally i said well because i love you okay and then you know suddenly that like made a big difference okay 
And then I said, well, what do we do about this? And I said, well, let's sign into a hotel, okay? Uh, we'll get the shirt cleaned, okay? And nobody will know the difference. And then she says, they'll never think, they, the other people in the CIA, they'll never think that we're in a hotel room having sex and I'm having sex with a pig like you. Okay? Yeah. So I say, so I, <laughs> I say, well, look, it's the supernatural. You never know. So we yeah. saw we sign, we sign into the hotel, okay? And she calls up from the hotel, and they buy it. They think, you know, we're having sex. It's like, you know, ridiculous. We'll go with that. A little bit of humor that's thrown in there. Oh, I love it. Look, I tell you what, you know, this is one of those situations where, I guess, uh, for lack of better ways to to uh, phrase it, it's like, um, you know, real life meets art, and you've combined them into this wonderful book, and it's, you know, reality versus this science fiction that you're talking about, this supernatural adventure that you're going on and it's a real credit to you that you've put this book together i just wonder you know are, are you intending to write any other books like this is are your well, writing again, days done well again i i have um one of the, my doctors uh, who i he's basically saved my life okay this this person read the book and basically when i was going to stop eating and drinking she said you know and she's very blunt, you know, you're gonna go straight to hell if you even tell them about the book if this is what you think, okay? So um, I'm very close to her. She knows me like you know, better than anyone, basically, yep. at this point. And um, she says, well, we need to write the next book about what happened with Hashimoto's encephalitis. And basically it's a sitcom, you know, you, you have no freaking memory, okay? And, and uh, uh, you still have the peripheral neuropathy and, you know, that's a book. Okay, and there's a book there. there, Okay, I I mean, first of all, it's a rare disease. So you're talking about somebody with a rare disease. You're talking about somebody who had a miracle in their life. Okay. Yep. Uh, Again, uh, well, but again, here's the other thing. So I get into the hospital on March 25th, 2019. I'm out of my mind. Okay, I get discharged on May 2nd. Okay, so I'm in the hospital all that time. May 2nd is um, the birthday of uh, my brother-in-law, who I'm very close to. It's like the brother I never had. Okay. Yep. And the day that I had the miracle where my memory came back, uh, April 29, 2022, is his wife's birthday. Oh. Right. Coincidental. Uh, <laughs> right. It's, it's a, you know, I don't believe in coincidences. No. Okay? And, and again, you know, he, he's, um, he doesn't believe in God at this point. Okay. Uh, and and uh, I say, you're going to believe. Okay. It's, it's going to happen. Okay. It's, you're going to, you know, it's, you're going you're gonna to be there. Okay. Um, Good things are happening. Right. Good things are happening. And again, in the book that I wrote, originally it was written in 1988, uh, I already had uh, James, my oldest son, and Paul, my second son. And so the character is James Paul. It's the name of me, my character. Okay. Uh, but at the end of the epilogue, um, I marry the beautiful blonde, okay? And we have four sons uh, in order of James, Paul, Peter, and John, okay? Yep. So I've been waiting for Peter and John, but I'm 74 years old and, and <laughs> wife is 68. So it, it doesn't it would take a miracle, okay? <laughs> All right. Uh, but again, we're always arguing, okay? So we're sitting at this, back back to October 15th, 1982. We're in the restaurant at the Four Seasons Hotel uh, uh, and we're at dinner and she has a map. She opens up a map of Munich uh, that they give out at the train station if you're a tourist, if you want to you know, the sites. And there's a, a spot, one of the nice sites is the Wittelsbach Fountain. Uh, the Wittelsbach family from Sweden, okay, there we go, 
um, ran Bavaria for 600 years. So there's this beautiful fountain there. You can look it up. Yep. Uh, and when she folded it a certain way, it looked like there's a J on there. So somehow we both knew that that's the name of our first child and it was going to be a male. So we're running, at the end of dinner, we're running through this fountain, okay? And uh, she says, it's James. It means James. Our, our first child is going to be James, okay? And we weren't thinking of having children then. It wasn't like we were trying right then. No. This is October 15th, 1982. James was born the end of November 1983. So oh, it would be a long pregnancy if that was happening. I'll tell you now. <laughs> so we, we get, and, and as, we're, as we're running there, I say, well, what's wrong with uh, John or Joseph? Those are good names, okay? And she looks at me like I'm crazy. It's James, okay, obviously. So we're running through this fountain to see if there's anything with James or John or Joseph or whatever they have written there. And there's nothing written there, but there's a, a, an old man. And again, the fountain is beautiful, but it's in like a, a very narrow thing of, of a sidewalk in a circle of traffic. So here's some guy standing there in the middle of traffic at around 1030 at night. And he looks at me and he says, my name is James. I've been, oh. waiting, I've been waiting for you for a long time. It's about time you got here. And he turned around and left. Okay. And that's how James thinks, that's he, crazy. James thinks he was named after um, my um, mother-in-law's father. Oh, I tell you, yeah. I just have to interject here, Paul, because, you know, we could talk about this forever. I know you have so many wonderful stories to tell, but this is the very reason why I have a special spot on the My Future Business Show for book authors, because you have an incredible story to tell. You've done so much in your life and you've achieved so much. And this uh, wonderful woman in your life has gone from strength to strength with you. You've seen so many incredible things. And I know that there's more coming, but if people actually want to, they decide that they need to read this book, a couple of things. Is it a quick read and where can they get it? First off, it's a quick read. It's only 96 pages of text. Okay. Right. And they yep. can get it on the website, uh, http colon forward slash forward slash pauljoelbook.com forward slash. That's my website. And yep. you, can, you can see it, you know, some of the readings part of it, you know, it'll introduce you to the book too. But it's also yep. on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. It's on Kindle. You can buy it as a soft cover, hard cover, or a Kindle, or an ebook too. It's well, I'll tell you what. I'm hopeful that you do put uh, the pen to paper again, Paul, because I know that I'm looking forward to learning more about uh, Hashimoto's encephalitis and all other wonderful stories that you have to share with the world, because I know that you are on a very special mission and I wish you all the very best. Now, if you are on today's call and you've listened in, into any part of this call and, you, and you're excited to learn more and uh, you want to learn more, definitely go visit pauljoelbook.com. I'll be making sure that the links are made available to you below this uh, interview, no matter where you see it, you're going to find links back to the book and all of the work that Paul is doing. So with all that being said, Paul, thank you so very much for joining me on the My Future Business Show today. Thank you so much for having me.